Hello and welcome to today's podcast. My name's Mark Morton. And I thought what I'd uh, have a quick chat with you about today is national insurance. Obviously, uh, national insurance for the first time for a long time has hit the headlines with the uh, cost of living crisis, as it's being referred to, uh, the social care levy that's being introduced. Also in the spring statement, the Chancellor pretty late in the day, actually, and it's interesting with spring statements, I thought the whole point with spring statements was that it was more of a fiscal update and there wouldn't be any major tax announcements made in those. Mind you, I suppose you can say, you know, national insurance is not a tax uh, if you want to be pedantic. But, you know, I thought there were no, no serious policy announcements made at that stage. Um, interestingly, to do that at the last minute means a lot of those changes are actually deferred to July to allow the revenue systems to update themselves and we'll maybe come back to uh, revenue systems in a minute. We'll talk in more detail about social care levy, the changes in our Finance Act courses later in the year. Uh, we are still waiting for some legislation to come through um, by way of regulation, actually, on the national insurance side and uh, the Class 2 changes. So we'll cover that when the legislation is finalised. But I thought it was just interesting that it's it's hit the papers. I've always felt there's a bit of a lack of awareness uh, for a lot of lay people, um, certainly if you look at my older daughter, uh, I've tried to teach her the rudimentaries of pay as you earn. I'm not entirely sure successfully, but I've tried over the years. What was quite interesting when she started her first full-time job um, was, interestingly, you know, she knew about tax and she kind of said to me, well, this is my annual salary, uh, divide by 12, knock off the personal allowance sort of thing. You know, knock off 20%, and then that's really sort of my net pay. And I said, well, you better knock off 30%. Why? National insurance, what's that? What does that do? And I think that is just indicative of the general lack of understanding. I think you know a number of governments have uh, managed to, what's the right word, manipulate a little bit, you know, to hide so-called risers because – we've seen if you increase basic rate or if you fiddle with basic rate, people understand what 20% is. I don't really think they understand what NI is, not necessarily what it costs or what it does. And that leads into wider issues, uh, clearly. And there are, there are a couple of um, tribunal cases which have really taken my attention over recent times. One was an aggregation case, an aggregation was a national insurance concept I was taught many years ago by uh, a guy who um, I'd known for a long time and was a national insurance expert. Um, There weren't many around, but he'd been involved in writing national insurance legislation. And aggregation in the old world of manual payrolls was the idea that if you work for common employers, then earnings should be aggregated unless it's not reasonable to do so, unless it's not practical to do so. Clearly, in the days of old manual payrolls, if you were sitting even with in a group situation, if you were running two or three different manual payrolls, it wasn't necessarily that straightforward to aggregate earnings. Um, If you fast forward to today, just because you don't know, not aware of the rule, doesn't mean it's not practical to stick a figure in an IT box and press go. So it's quite interesting with how technology has changed some of the um, excuses 
leeways, easements in the legislation. And the, the case that was in the tribunal was actually related to a state benefit. Uh, the guy concerned had originally worked for one organisation uh, that had been split into two. So he'd been carried on working, but essentially with two jobs. Somewhere later down the line, he went to claim um, state benefit and was told that he hadn't paid any national insurance. And that's what led to him going back and said, well, I think the earnings should have been aggregated because these were common employers and I should have paid an I, which would have given me the state benefit. Um, he didn't win his case because the businesses said they weren't essentially operating as common employments. But fundamentally, his argument was about ongoing uh, state benefits in his working life. Of course, there is a spin-off consequence then into state pension. And I, it's something that has intrigued me over the years. And I wouldn't profess to be the world's expert on this, but you know, maybe I know a little more than um, some other people. Uh, and, it, and it's interesting that when you look at basic state pension entitlement, 35 years of contribution, how many lay people would necessarily under that understand that point, let alone any of the complexities. And I think one of the things where we're heading for a bit of a, whatever the word is, scandal in, in the future or you know particularly issue is high income child benefit charge. There is clearly a great lack of understanding amongst a lot of, again, lay people, unrepresented people, about the tax element of high income child benefit charge. The fact that if they've received it, and then may have to pay it back in 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 some shape or form, or, and or their partner or spouse may have to pay it back. Um, so th- it's quite clear that there is a compliance system that's been created to deal with that aspect. But of course, then there is this, the spin-off point. I'm touching wood at this stage, but uh, let's assume that we have a third child, myself and my wife. Uh, let's assume, make it easy, my income is 60,000 quid although of course you know it's not it's not it's not quite income uh it is adjusted income um so i mean again for lay people it's not quite as saying as simple as saying just look at your income but you know let's assume my income is 60,000 quid and my wife's is zero so in simple terms um you know we are not entitled as a couple begs the question would there be any point um us as a couple claiming it to then pay it back. Now, you may say, well, you know, it'd be good for my wife. She could claim it and I pay it back. I I think the interesting thing there is, in a financial sense, probably not worth the effort of claiming and giving back again. You know, what's the point? But I think the interesting point would would be the knock-on to pension entitlement for both of us. Let's assume my wife is staying at home with that child is, is a year of, credit if you want to call it that available so should we claim the child benefit but disclaim the payment of the child benefit now again how many lay people would understand the nuance within that i suspect not many now the other thing would be getting it in the right place you know there would be no point that credit being on my record if it's my wife that's at home and i think it, it it's really interesting as well the spin off into class 2 You've all seen the aggravation with Class 2 when uh, payments are not made before 31st of January. Now, of course, we've created another particular raft of this problem um, with the deferral that's been allowed for coronavirus and returns. And, of course, 
the, the naughty thing from the revenue is say, well, you can't pay class two late into self-assessment. Well, yeah, that is true. It's not that you can't pay class two, though. It's that the self-assessment system won't accept it. And then, as some of you will have found, you've got the aggravation of then going as a separate exercise and trying to get that payment credited to the national insurance record. Now, the scandal of that, that is purely to do with the revenue systems. You know, and the num- the amounts of bad advice I've I've seen via the revenue saying, well, you can't pay. Well, yes, we can pay, just not via the, the self-assessment mechanism. And, of course, there'll be a lot of people out there who, who are in this position, I suspect, have never chased up this issue and said to the national insurance people, I want to pay this as a separate exercise because I want that credit on my record, please. You know, and it's it's really interesting for me that my digital tax account, which I am aware of, uh, and again, I think a lot of clients would not be aware of this, I know looking at my digital tax account that my pensions record is up to date. I understand what it means. Uh, is it very clear? Not necessarily, but I understand what's being shown. It's interesting for my wife again, my wife, A, doesn't know she's got a digital tax account. Uh, I haven't told her that I have fraudulently pretended to be her to check it. And it's interesting with her record, uh, again, without being derogatory to her, I guess she wouldn't fully understand what the information was telling her. She started work at the age of 16. She worked in full-time employment until she was probably late 20s when we started a family. Uh, and she started her short career break, uh, which she's still on. So uh, clearly a bit of a terminology issue uh, that I should have um, uh, been, been a little bit tighter on at that stage. But then, of course, we had numerous years of child benefit that came into play. It was in her name because I understood what we were doing. And I can see from her pensions record those relevant years of credit, again, if you want to call it that, are in there. Um One of the interesting things for child benefit, uh, and this is something that the Labour government did, so I mean, it's not a new thing when that's that's what I mean by that statement. Um, You only get a credit for state state pension purposes up to the age of 12, although the payment of child benefit can potentially go up to 18 stroke 19 in full-time education. You can only have a maximum of 20 years of credit for child benefit full stop. So, of course, the moral of that is you only ever want two kids with an eight-year gap, three kids, complete waste of money. You know, So there's a lot of nuances that go into this. I think the other thing that is really interesting in terms of my wife's position, uh, we've started to discuss this vaguely, is class three. Um, she has the ability to make six years of voluntary contribution on a rolling basis. The interesting thing from her perspective is we haven't, or she hasn't had a deficiency letter from the revenue alerting her to these holes in her record for probably 10 years now. And if anybody remembers, we had a scandal on this once before. The government had stopped issuing letters. Uh, people didn't know what they were, you know, what the problem with their state pension was. And the government and the revenue went through a big catch-up exercise, promptly then, to then not issue them again. You know, so it, it, it's craziness. And, and we're only just really scraping the surface of all of this. Uh, you know, interaction with other state benefits and so on and so forth. So uh, I think the moral of this is is the state pension has always been something that the individual should check themselves. If it's never been the responsibility of the state to say, you know, you're in arrears, although I think they have a, a care and management duty, that's never been what the legislation says. 
So if you're interested in the state pension, uh, I should check your own record, make sure it's up to date. Um, I should ask your clients to check their own and approach you with significant problems. But lots and lots of issues, and we may explore some of the uh, more recent changes, as I said, in our Finance Act course. So thanks for tuning in today. Um, Hope it's made you think, if nothing else, and you can now rush off, look at your digital tax account, and decide what you're going to do about your state pension. So take care, everybody. Uh, See you soon.